So about a year ago, I started going out into the English Channel, uh, filming migrant boats coming across, uh, filming something in particular that had never been seen before, not talked about, which was the fact that the, the French Navy were actually escorting boats into British waters and effectively handing them over to Border Force. And I did this because the story just wasn't getting enough publicity. Well, I think my actions did help uh, the rest of media to start looking at this. Well, today I went back into the English Channel. And I have to say, from half past four this morning, all of our resources were being used. Border Force, lifeboats, another very, very busy day. A thousand people came in through that Dover Reception Centre in the previous three days. We don't yet have a tally for today, but believe me, it will be in the hundreds again. Uh, what I saw uh, today out there absolutely confirmed that despite the deal, and yet another deal that Priti Patel did with the French government yesterday, whereby we agreed to hand over another £50 million, still the French Navy are escorting migrant boats into British waters. It seems that the more migrants that come, the more money we give the French government. I think there's something very wrong with it. I don't think we should be paying them a penny piece, given the way they're behaving. But please have a look at what I saw in the English Channel this morning. OK, so you can see just over there, there's a migrant boat coming absolutely rammed to the gunnels. I don't know how many on that, 20, 30, I would think, something like that. And there is Her Morven. French naval vessel that is, that is escorting this dinghy and in a couple of hundred yards time it'll be gone because that boat will be in British waters and it's no longer a French problem, it's a British problem. Pretty Patel, I want you to look at this clip. Can you please tell me why you've just given the French another 50 million when they're using that money to pay their Royal Navy to escort illegal craft into British waters? This needs answering. We can actually hear uh, the migrants on the boat talking. They've all got life jackets, 25 to 30 on there, probably paying five, six, seven thousand pounds each. So work out the numbers. Every one of those boats is worth big six-figure money to the traffickers. And there's our French naval friend um, dropping them over the line into United Kingdom waters. Isn't that nice of them? Yeah, separation zone. It's a southwest lane, northeast lane, which is French, southwest of the UK. If you come down, United Kingdom waters. Right, and just down there. There it is. France, United Kingdom, and he's well inside United Kingdom. One. Um, it would appear their engine has broken down. Now, whether whether um, they've run out of fuel or it's an engine failure, I don't know. It is a very calm day, um, so Border Force are on their way, but Border Force have been overwhelmed this morning. Um, a huge number of boats again today. We even found a vessel a few minutes ago with 13 people in it with no engine. 13 people simply with oars. So this is completely off the scale. These people here are in no danger. Border Force will be with them in 10 or 15 minutes. But we're looking again, I would, I would quite confidently predict, at hundreds of people again today coming through the port of Dover illegally. So Border Force have now got a new vessel. Here it is, Hurricane. It was working on wind farms. Why have they got a new boat? Well, frankly, they simply haven't got room to put everybody on. Um, uh, the other day, uh, one of the lifeboats just simply couldn't take 88 people on board. And so they literally had to follow the boats until they went onto the shore. This is out of control. And I tell you what, in a few weeks' time, that boat, that boat won't be big enough either.
So there we saw the French Navy escorting that boat into British waters, and we proved it on the plotter with that map that you saw. I made reference there to the other site that we saw. I mean, have a look at these pictures. It is quite extraordinary. So there's a boat. No one's got a life jacket. There's no engine on the back of it. There are 13 guys in it, I, I suspect from Africa, just you know, with a couple of oars rowing across the English Channel. I mean, the whole thing is complete and utter madness. And going that route and get across one of the busiest shipping lanes in the world. Uh, quite extraordinary. Two things I will say uh, on it. Number one, it is a miracle that we haven't as yet had a major disaster. Uh, but given that some of the new boats are over 11 metres long and can take 70 or more people, uh, and they're literally put together with bits of plywood and glue um, around a hull uh, that is very, very weak. It's only a matter of time, I think, uh, before we have a major disaster, a major human disaster in the English Channel. And the other thing I want to say is this. These numbers are exploding. Already more people have come into the UK illegally across the Channel than came in the whole of 2020. I said a few weeks ago I thought 20,000 would come. I now think it will be 30,000. I've got no doubt about that because nothing so far that the Home Secretary has done, despite strong words, has changed anything. But last night she did announce a new deal with the French, another £54 million. And let's see the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, speaking today to the Home Affairs Select Committee. We did double the number of patrols around the beaches of France, and there's been a great deal of technology, investment, surveillance and intelligence. That continues. Um, the purpose of the new agreement, I think, again, we have to look, this, look at this in the context of what we are seeing. This is never a static situation. Um, this is an evolving situation. The numbers of migrants attempting these crosses, um, these crossings from France has increased considerably. Well, there's pretty saying that basically we put our money in and we've stopped more people from, well, French have stopped more people coming off those beaches, but more are coming. Uh, nothing she said since August 2019 has made any difference. But there is some legislation going through the House of Commons. Uh, and let's get an assessment of whether it might, just might, make a difference. Well, joining me now is Ivan Sampson, the CEO of Privatist Law and a specialist in immigration law. Good evening and thank you for joining us. Uh, good evening, Nigel. It's a pleasure. Now, I understand that one of her proposals is to say that any migrant in those boats will be classified uh, effectively as being a criminal and could face up to four years in prison. Is that really practical? Well, it, it, they, entering the UK illegally has been a criminal offence um, since 1971. This is nothing new. But the problem that Priti Patel had is that those entering UK territorial waters were arriving and not entering. So until they actually disembarked onto UK land, went through immigration control, they hadn't committed an, an immigration offence and a criminal offence under the 71 Act. So she had to bring in a new legislation to make arriving in itself a criminal offence. So even if the migrants are intercepted in UK territorial waters, it's then classed as a criminal offence even if they haven't actually disembarked onto UK land. Right, but I mean, at the moment, the thousands that come get put up in four-star hotels or private accommodation. I mean, uh, the idea 
that they're going to be put in prison, given that our prisons are full. I mean, it's pretty much a non-starter, isn't it? I mean, surely, surely, given that the Human Rights Act is still on the statute book, there'd be mass objections to that. I think it's going to be a challenge for this country to process possibly tens of thousands of people. We simply don't have the facility to put these people into prison. So what you could have is perhaps suspended sentences. So then they're going to be looked after in the community at the taxpayers' expense. Yeah, and Ivan, you know, as I understand it, ever since 1951, um, and we got the Geneva Convention, you know, the UN Declaration on Refugee Status, and we all knew what the terms of a genuine refugee were, but we also understood that you claim that refugee status in the first safe country that you came to. And given uh, that clearly all of these people are coming directly from France, I mean, surely, surely we don't need on that basis to actually accept anybody. Why don't we return people back to France? Well, this is a problem for this country because the receiving state has to accept them. That's the first. And what Priti Patel has done in the New Borders Bill is to threaten these countries with sanctions. For example, they could refuse visas from citizens of those countries unless they accept these refugees. And look, Article 31 of the Refugee Convention uh, prohibits penalisation of refugees. The way the UK government get around this is that the Refugee Convention is actually not effective in UK law. And they also say that the distinction is, is the mode of transport. So if you're coming directly from a country where you fear persecution to the UK, it's not a criminal offence. If you come via a third country, it then becomes a criminal offence. So there's a distinction between, um, well, there's a differential treatment on the mode of transport. So you can actually come with a, with a false passport on an aeroplane using false identities, claim asylum at the airport, and that's not a criminal offence. But if you come via a third country, it now it will shortly become a criminal offence. Now, if we took the Australian solution and we just put those boats under tow and took them straight back to Calais and Boulogne, uh, what would the international reaction to that be? Um, I think it's going to be difficult under our current um, membership uh, of the Refugee Convention. We're signed up to that treaty. So if people claim asylum in UK territorial waters, we've got an obligation under that convention to process that application. I mean, Priti Patel is, is talking about having um, refugee centres offshore. Uh, yes. There have been prison ships in this country for many years. Um, I've visited a few myself. So I, the government is proposing having uh, ships or oil rigs or even this talk of uh, third countries like Rwanda um, mm. and having a refugee camp there and they're in discussion with the government of Denmark to do, to do such a pilot scheme. Yeah, but Australia did do this. You know, in 2012, the Australians, Tony Abbott was the Prime Minister, they simply towed those boats back to Indonesia, um, and perhaps they found themselves in breach um, of, of, of the UN Convention. But it worked, didn't it? I, I can't really comment on whether it worked, and I don't have the, have the information about that. What I will say is this, though, that... Um, as long as we're members of the Refugee Convention, we have an obligation to process asylum claims. And um, it's right that we do that because we've, we've got obligations under international treaty law. Ivan, thank you very much indeed. Well, there's the argument of the sort of legal, international legal pickle and treaty pickle that we got ourselves into. Uh, but what I'm certain of, what I'm absolutely certain of, is that the numbers that are coming will go up 
and September will be the peak month. And I think you're going to see days with very, very large numbers of people. And I frankly think it's wrong to give another 54 million to the French government if their naval boats are escorting those illegal migrant boats into British waters. Please tell me whether you agree or disagree. GB views at GB News. Please tell me what you think. Uh, and if you're going to criticise, please just keep it clean. Now, one story we've been waiting for a long, long time is what would happen on NHS pay. And there were, I think, some fairly optimistic demands being made by those working in the National Health Service. As it is, we're told it's going to be a 3% pay rise backdated to the spring of this year. And I just wonder, because this news didn't break until about 45 minutes ago, I just wonder what the reaction to that is going to be. And joining me now is Roy Lilly, health commentator and former NHS Trust chairman. Uh, Roy, how's this 3% going to go down? Uh, badly, I think. Um, the trade unions tonight, Unison, have already kicked off. They may want... Um, uh, they, they're saying that the retail price index has gone up by 3.9%. This is 3.3%. Uh, you know, there's a gap there already. They're also pointing out that if you go back to the start of the banking crisis, which is 2010, after which the NHS had pretty much flatline funding and no one got a, anything uh, like a, a pay increase, then nurses and the NHS generally sort of out, is out of pocket by about 19%. So, you know, when you said there were some optimistic claims, that was you know, that surely was. I think the BMA also were looking for about 12.5, how they calculate that. OK, so what's going to happen now? Well, look, the... It is interesting to look at the passage of this today. The junior, uh, junior minister was supposed to make this announcement in the House of Commons this afternoon. They didn't. And the Secretary of State made it out of the House of Commons this evening, later on. They've okay. accepted the pay review body's uh, recommendations. Now, just to make clear what that is, it's an independent body where the government and the, uh, the uh, trade unions and, and employers' organisations submit uh, evidence to the independent pay review body. Um, the government said we can afford a 1%. Uh, who knows what the staff side said, but we've ended up with 3%. So it's more than it was trailed. Will it do the job? Well, clearly the trade unions will say no. Mm. I think there's a kind of, there's, there's, a, there's two camps here, Nigel. I mean, first, I think there is a, a whole slug of NHS staff that are pretty sanguine about this and realise the state of the economy, the fact that a lot of people have lost their jobs, furloughs, businesses have gone down the tubes, the economy is in shreds, uh, and I think they're being pretty sanguine about it. Um, and, of course, there are the trade unions. It's come at a very good time for the government, though, because the RCN, who would normally take a lead on this, have just lost their chief executive in a cloud of who knows what. The chairman has just resigned and the interim chairman has just stood aside. <laughs> so <laughs> it's come at a very good time for the government. And if you're going to ask me, are they going to get away with it? I think probably yes. Yeah, a sort of good day to bury bad news in that sense, I suppose. But I mean, your point about inflation is absolutely right. Uh, you know, inflation is beginning to run up. And, 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 and when you see trade unions talking about inflation rates and, and pay rises, it sort of brings back memories of the 1970s. But the truth of it is, and I think, isn't this what most, isn't this what most people working for the NHS will actually accept, is that 12.5% of 
would have cost another six to seven billion pounds at a time when effectively the national debt, you know, has doubled over the course of the pandemic. And I, I you know, I would have expected the trade unions to say it wasn't enough. But isn't the reality that most people are actually going to say, do you know what, provided the government, provided the government makes a promise that when times get better, we're first in the queue. I, th I have a feeling if that's what the government now says on the back of tonight's announcement, I have a feeling that, it w that we won't see industrial action here. Uh, do you sense that I'm right with that? Yeah, I do. I think you're, you're smack on. I, I think yeah, the junior doctors are never going to go on strike again, I don't think. Yeah. Um, I think the BMA talk tough, but I don't think the doctors will go on strike. And certainly, um, I don't know who's going to lead a nurse's strike. So I, 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 don't think, I, I don't think now is the time for strike. And I, and I think, uh, you know, the, the, the big thing for me with this, Nigel, is the cack-handed way the government dealt with this from the off. They knew they'd have to consider a pay rise. And so... They, you know, they rather dismissively said, oh, well, we're going to offer 1%. And, you know, and, and, you know, the nurses have done a great job. Thanks very much. And here's 1%, uh, where other countries were giving days off, for uh, in, extending yeah. annual leave for COVID and all this bit. If Johnson had come on the program and said, look, uh, you know what's happened. We're skinned. We've got no money. Nobody's, no public sector is getting a pay rise. But yes. you know what? The energy is such a special case. We Somehow or other, we're going to scrape together 1%. It's not enough. It's a token of our appreciation. And when things are better, we'll fix it. If he'd have done that, I think most people would have said, OK, fair enough. And there'd have been no row. Now it is. Now he's got this long running row and the unions won't let him forget it. So he's going to go into the party conference season into next year with this kind of sour taste in everyone's mouth. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think if the Prime Minister had taken the lead on this, explained the financial situation, made some promises for the future, uh, then I think he could have emerged from this actually rather well. But he doesn't seem to like to take the lead on many things. I must ask you one last question, which is, you know, that because of the pandemic and because we kind of cleared the hospitals, um, expecting what could well have been a huge number of patients going in with COVID, but it turned out to be fewer, there's a backlog as I understand it, of about five million operations. How on earth is the NHS ever going to catch up? They've got no chance. People are going to die waiting, frankly. Um, in the course of a normal year, Nigel, we do 10 million operations. Two million are emergencies. Eight million are what we call electives. So you've got five million people. We're behind the, behind the front, behind the blackboard with five million. Add to that the eight million we get in a normal year. That's 13 million. If the parliament runs to 2024, that's something like 30 million operations the NHS has got to do to try and clear the backlog and keep up. It's not going to do it. So uh, I, I think the, the whole waiting list thing is, uh, is a real problem. And tonight, uh, uh, an internal memo has come out from the NHS where hospitals in the Midlands have been told to release their surge capacity. That means that, uh, I mean, these are generally places where vaccine take-up is fairly low um, uh, and so they're expecting a whole surge in uh, in admissions into hospital and, pass and, and patients through I&E. So, you know, this is not over by a long shot. No, this argument, this is not going away, is it? Not in a hurry. Roy, thank you very much indeed for joining us and giving us that very frank assessment. Now, Northern Ireland, the one part of the United Kingdom uh, where unionists are furious 
with the Brexit deal that Boris Johnson signed up to. And we now have a standoff, uh, demands on the British side that something has to change. But the European Union, our friends in Brussels, being as intransigent as ever. We will speak in a moment to the former First Minister of Northern Ireland, Arlene Foster. Well, I was back out there in the English Channel today, uh, seeing, amongst other things, a boat with no engine, 13 men in it, just rowing with oars, but another, and more significantly, another boat with about 25 people on it, uh, and that was escorted by the French Navy right across from the French coast into British waters. And once it was in British waters, the French Navy left it, turned tail, and went back home. It is still going on, despite an extra £54 million being pledged overnight from Pretty Patel. And frankly, I would say this is not fair dealing. Uh, there is no returns policy agreed with France whatsoever. Uh, we have a problem uh, that was explained to us earlier on tonight in that we're signed up to the Refugee Convention, uh, which makes it very, very difficult just to tow the boats back to France unless we say, unless we say, look, this is a crisis that can turn into an emergency. And unless we do that, this problem is going to get worse and worse. In fact, I'll predict you ain't seen nothing yet. So looking at your uh, responses, uh, some of which are absolutely fascinating, and Brexit gets mentioned quite a lot, and that's no surprise, is it? Because one of the big things about Brexit was people saying, we want to take back control of our borders. So, GB News, uh, GB Views at GB News, and people are telling us things like Brexit was supposed to stop this. It has not and will not. Like Brexit, it will break the economy for the working class, causing job losses. There will be no levelling up. Well, I think the point is this. Our population has risen by 9 million since the year 2000. And over 80% of that population rise has been directly or indirectly immigration. And that has had a downward pressure on wages and made it difficult to get your kid into the local school and, indeed, uh, for children, your children, to go out and buy houses. By contrast, the sheer number coming across the channel is actually small. But... It's the graphic imagery and the fact that it, is, that it is illegal, I think, that really, really gets to us. What we should be doing is investing 50 million into our own border controls, not giving it to the French. We know where these people are landing. Get some enforcement there also. Wonder how many have COVID-19 passports and track and trace. <laughs> well, Jim, <laughs> I think we know the answer to that. And there was a, I mean, you know, there was a time when Dunkirk was the COVID hotspot of France, and a lot of boats were coming from Dunkirk. So who's to say, you know, what effect that's had in the United Kingdom? I, this is out of control. And isn't it ironic that over the last few days, the government have announced, have told the half a million Brits that are currently in France on holiday, they've changed the rules after people went away to say, when you come back to the United Kingdom, you are going to have to isolate for up to 10 days. And when people are told that, half a million of them, and yet they see these illegal border crossings increasing, I think people have a right to actually be quite angry. Sharon says, bring in our Navy to protect our waters. What are we paying them for? 
But again, you see, you can put the entirety of the Royal Navy in the English Channel. Well, I say the entirety. I mean, we haven't really got much of it left. But if once those migrant boats have crossed the line into British waters, they are accepted into the reception centre at Dover, it doesn't matter how much kit you put in the English Channel. Mick on email says, instead of giving the French money, give it to British citizens to go on a paid holiday to the French coast. <laughs> I don't know whether that's actually going to happen. In fact, I don't think it is going to happen. And Maggie says, 17.4 million voters said out of the EU and no more migrants. Nothing's happened. No, Maggie, I don't think many of them thought it was no more migrants. What they thought was it was taking back control and reducing, certainly, reducing significantly the number of migrants coming into the country. A net level of population increase every year. This issue, I think, I mean, I, I've said this before this week, but I think this issue could well become the biggest non-COVID issue this year. But there's one issue uh, that is highly contentious, and it has been ever since Boris Johnson went to Brussels, uh, signed up to a slightly amended agreement from Mrs May's deal, came back and said that it was an oven-ready deal. It was all absolutely tickety-boo, and one or two of us were pretty sceptical about that, including, joining me now, Arlene Foster, who at the time was First Minister of Northern Ireland. And Arlene, thank you very much and, and, and welcome to the programme. I, I do remember Boris Johnson being asked specifically about whether there would be a border in the Irish Sea between Northern Ireland and the mainland. And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but he said very clearly that that wouldn't happen, didn't he? Yes, Nigel, and it's good to be with you uh, as well you. this evening talking about uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol because uh, right up until very recently, our government was saying that there wasn't a border in the Irish Sea. And those of us living in Northern Ireland knew that that was not the case because, of course, we have very integrated supply chains, understandably, between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. And those were all disrupted as a result of the protocol. Um, we weren't able to get pot plants over from Great Britain into Northern Ireland because they had British soil uh, and it needed to be checked. Uh, and therefore, we shouldn't be bringing pot plants from Great Britain into Northern Ireland. You can imagine uh, what sort of uh, chaos that was causing for a lot of our gardeners at the time. And just today, Archie Norman, the chairman of Marks and Spencers, has said that Actually, if this isn't sorted out, uh, we're going to have less choice uh, on our shelves uh, come Christmas. And the cost is going to increase as well. So I do welcome the fact that finally the government have recognised that uh, we need to do something pretty significant. Uh, this command paper is to be welcomed. I just wish it had come a lot quicker. Yeah. Has Boris Johnson apologised for misleading you? Uh, well, no, I haven't been speaking <laughs> to the Prime Minister, uh, and that will not surprise you. But I do welcome the fact that there is a recognition now within government that there has to be fundamental changes. doesn't surprise me at all. I'm sure it doesn't surprise you, Nigel, that the European Union has come out very quickly and said that they're not going to renegotiate the protocol, despite the fact that in the protocol itself, in Article 13.8, it actually envisages changes to the protocol, but they're deciding that they're going to hang tough uh, because all of their great rhetoric about uh, wanting to secure the peace in Northern Ireland is just that. It is just rhetoric. Uh, and actually, uh, the protocol is causing great harm to Northern Ireland, both commercially and societally as well. 
I mean, the irony of all of this, of course, is that Ursula von der Leyen, the boss of the European Commission, it was she, wasn't it, a couple of months ago, um, with, when, when with the massive rows over vaccines, she effectively was prepared to put back a hard border on the island of Ireland, wasn't she? Yeah, so the protocol was only in operation for three weeks uh, when at the end of January, uh, the European Commission uh, decided that they were going to uh, trigger Article 16 to safeguard their vaccine supplies because they didn't want uh, vaccines coming in uh, through the back door of Northern Ireland uh, into Great Britain. So it, it was actually the European Union who first indicated that they were going to trigger Article 16. And for your viewers, Nigel, that means that you can unilaterally act uh, to secure uh, either the European Union interests or the United Kingdom interests. And I yeah, so it's, a, it's kind, of a, kind of a suspension, really, of the agreement, isn't it? Yes, yes. it's a suspension uh, to allow renegotiation. And, of course, uh, the European Union is now saying um, that that can't take place, despite the fact that it is provided for in the protocol itself. And, I mean, really, do you feel... And I remember very well... The 31st of January 2020, being in Parliament Square, celebrating the fact that Brexit was happening, there was detail to sort out. And I remember talking to, to one or two people in the DUP, and they, as Brexiteers, were not celebrating on that day. Does it feel like you're still part of the European Union in Northern Ireland? Well, it's actually worse than that because uh, whilst we have to take the rules and regulations from the European Union, we've absolutely no say. We always had very little say in those rules and regulations. Yeah. One of the reasons why I right. wanted to leave the European Union. Um, but we have absolutely no say at all now because uh, we have no consent mechanism to these new rules and regulations. We have to take them. And that's fundamentally wrong in any democratic society that we're rule takers and absolutely no say as to how we come about those laws because we don't have any MEPs in Europe and nor do we want them. No, and of course, normally at this time of the year, things can be quite fractious in Northern Ireland. It is the marching season, as it's known. Um, and clearly because of COVID, those kind of marches have not been taking place. But and I, I obviously want to be careful about this, but just how angry are people getting in the unionist community? You know, we see examples of, of, of graffiti at ports and things, but just how much anger is there about the predicament that Northern Ireland finds itself in? Oh, there's been huge anger because we were promised that we were leaving the European Union, and as I've said, we haven't left in terms of still having to abide by rules and regulations. Rules and regulations, which, as you well know, are so inflexible and do not allow us to be entrepreneurial or innovative in a way that we should be. Yeah. Um, and therefore, we have to take those rules, but we've absolutely no say in that. But the, the fundamental issue for us is the fact that we are part of the United Kingdom, and I welcome the fact that the PM in this command paper reasserts that today, but we are being treated differently from the rest of the UK, and there's this great barrier between us when it comes to trade. That doesn't just go against the Belfast Agreement and the balance uh, that there is in Northern Ireland. It also goes against the Act of Union, actually, Nigel, mm. because Article 6 of the Act of Union was about a free customs union uh, between all the parts of the United Kingdom, and that has been breached as well. So here we are. We have Lord Frost, the Brexit minister, who I think many think has done a pretty good job, uh, maybe not perfect, but standing up in the House of Lords and, and very much defending the integrity of Northern Ireland, within the United Kingdom, saying that what was signed up to was impractical. Well, 
We could tell him he should have listened to us, but hey, that's where we are with him saying that. On the other side, Mr Sefcovic from the European Commission saying that they won't budge an inch. Growing upset and anger within Northern Ireland. What happens next? How do we fix this? Well, it's within the Prime Minister's remit to unilaterally take action. I've been urging him to do that for some time, Nigel. I welcome uh, this late acknowledgement that the conditions exist now to trigger Article 16 and to take that yeah. unilateral action. I understand that the government wants to move in a diplomatic way and seek agreement with the European Union. But frankly, given the reaction this afternoon, I don't foresee any agreement coming forward. And I think the UK government are going to have to act unilaterally to protect its own citizens here in Northern Ireland. Arlene Foster, thank you very much for joining us here on thank you, Nigel. GB News. Well, uh, that's another problem uh, that isn't going to go away very quickly. Well, Boris Johnson's been mentioned a couple of times this evening, but we're about to talk to a different Johnson. Yes, it's the first father, if I can call him that, Stanley Johnson, who'll be joining me in a couple of minutes, and we'll be talking pints. Well, joining me now is Stanley Johnson, international ambassador of the Conservative Environment Network, author and former Conservative MEP. And as father of Boris Johnson, I think we should refer to him as the first father at all times. Now, he's joined me here on Talking Pints, but we have to come clean, don't we, and say that we have actually had a drink together before. Well, I'd say many a time and off, but I was, you know, pretty much on the opposing side of you. You know, politically, yes. Nigel, you've got to yes. admit it, you were pro-Brexit, I was anti-Brexit. I've got to say you won, and I accepted my, you know, my punishment like a man. I think what was interesting, even when that whole Brexit debate, and it got pretty bloody, you know, I mean, it, it, you could say it was bloody, and by the way, cheers, mm. cheers. This is lager, I normally drink bitter, but... By the way, I, I love the joke, talking pints. Yeah. Probably in Northern Ireland, you say pints anyway, you see... Anyway, we've just had Arlene Foster on the show. No, I mean, it was pretty bloody towards the end of the referendum, uh, the debate that was, that was going on. Uh, and then, of course, uh, as I would see it, uh, the complete refusal of much of the establishment to accept the result and endless agonies in Parliament and, you know, big front page you know, newspaper headlines about judges and You mean betrayal. the difficulty of getting the, the Brexit bill through and that kind of thing? The difficulty of getting it through, plus, uh, you know, a very well-funded attempt uh, to push a second referendum upon the British people on the basis that they were too ignorant and stupid to understand what they'd done. Well, the funds never came my way, I can tell you that. <laughs> I'm not saying <laughs> they did, that, but, but, but listen, but the point I'm making is this. Yeah. We've always been able to disagree, yeah. but to do so in a pretty civilised Wait. We have many as the bar, which we have propped up over a period of months. And I noticed that I didn't meet you at lunch today because I didn't go there either. No, 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 no. no. I mean, I, I, Stanley, Brexit's finished now, isn't it? This is the point, Nigel. This is the point. Look, nobody felt more upset than I did that we lost the campaign. But once we lost the campaign, I said, you know, the great British people have voted. And they're not only just voted once, they voted several times. They actually finally voted in the, in the December 2019 election. You know, there is no point in banging your head against the wall. We have to live with this. We have to make it work. That's my line. And are we going to make it work? We are. Quite sure about that. I think, for example, we will put into force the UK-EU withdrawal agreement. It is 693 pages. 
Most of it is probably in force already. OK, there's some little snippets going on about sausages in Northern Ireland. These are minor points. The broad outline is fixed. Well, Arlene Phillips was on just before the break. Yeah, I heard and, it. And it's not, too much, it's not just about sausages for her, is it? It's, 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 it's about whether they are fully a part of the United Kingdom or not. I mean, this is quite important stuff. Of course, I understand that. But if we reckon that we have a free trade agreement, which we do, because that's what the free trade, that's what the withdrawal agreement was about. We have a trade agreement with the EU. The nature of that agreement is that we are going to reduce, as far as we can, all sorts of barriers to trade, you know, and we're not going to come unstuck with a few sausages. So, if it comes to it then, if we can't have free trade within our own country, with Northern Ireland, we may have to renege on part of what we've agreed I don't see or negotiated. That. I don't see that. I simply don't see it happening. This block, this big block, which is, you know, the, the geo-Europe, the geophysical block, which we remain a part of. We may have been separated from the EU, but there's no way we're not part of the, the Eurasian landmass, Nigel. That's where we're an island, I thought. We well, are, I, perhaps I, I was in the channel today. Well, I believe no, no, I think we're... No, I'm, 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 I'm spreading hairs. You know, of, of course, I accept we, we, are, we are very close to Europe in lots and lots of ways. I mean, I personally don't think the European Union will even be here in ten years' time. There'll be a different configuration. I think uh, there's so much... I mean, you were in Brussels. You were in Brussels. I was in Brussels. We're both MEPs. It was a very different Brussels when I was there to when you were there. Nigel, I was lucky enough in 1973 to be one of the first British people, we call them Brits in those days, to be sent to Brussels. I was head of the something called the Prevention of Pollution and Nuisances Division. And I've got to tell you, it was a tremendously exciting time because Britain played a major role in that form of environmental policy. OK, life has moved on, but we are still going to be playing a major part in Europe. And I'd like to see us do so through other EU-wide and Europe-wide institutions. I'd like us to be, for example, part of the European Environment Agency, which provides specifically for non-EU countries. I'd like us to work with the Council of Europe on environmental issues. There's yeah. an awful lot of... I mean, we but, still but, of course, the Council of Europe is, internet, is, is countries cooperating. Yeah, of course. As opposed to the European Union, where you actually have to give a fair amount of your power to the centre. That is true. And, of course, when I was there, it was tremendously exciting to be able to get things done by having this power at the centre. Yeah, the Commission. You could say, I'm a faceless bureaucrat. <laughs> little red face. <laughs> red face bureaucrat, you could say. Well, I enjoyed my time as a faceless bureaucrat, and I wouldn't have undone it now. But and when, I you, and when you were an MEP, did you enjoy being an MEP? I very much did. I'm sorry I didn't overlap with you, Nigel, because it would have been fun. I did once sit next to Mr Chirac, and I yes. said, Bonjour, Monsieur le Président, and he said, Bonjour, Monsieur, and we shook hands. That was the only conversation I had with President <laughs> Chirac, but I was jolly pleased to have that. And I guess when you were there, there was, I mean, very little scrutiny. I, even when I arrived in the European Parliament, it didn't, there was not much scrutiny from the UK press as to what really went on there. And I, I, I sort of rather think I might have helped to change that ever so slightly. Um, well, Nigel, I would draw your attention to the huge campaign we launched at the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, to ban the import of baby seals and seal products into Europe. Now, those who were MPs in those days, and there's some of them still alive today, remember this as very, very painful, because they get more and more less on this and everything. And we did 
make an impact on some of these. And I remember campaigning with Brigitte Bardot, actually. Outside but why the, not? Yeah, and, and I once sent her a note after saying, you know, do you think we, do you think we might have, have lunch? I'm got, sure you did. Yeah, I got a note back from her, her, her chef de cabinet. We said, Madame Bardot, vous remercie, mais elle ne voit pas la nécessité <laughs> to have lunch. Yeah. Well, there you go. I mean, you take the, these things on the chin when they come. But uh, I'm not going to ever denigrate the, the 20, 30 years I spent on the whole European scene. But we are on a different scene now. Yeah. And the crucial thing is to work with them, now, particularly on things like China, Stanley, climate change. Stanley, I'm perfectly, I mean, I want to work with our European neighbours. You know, I absolutely do, but as sovereign countries, and that's how I feel about it. And, 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 and so many people did. Yeah. The, the majority of the British public agreed with you. But you talked about seals and seal products yeah. there. So the environment... Um, Saving elephants, these things have been part of you for a very long time. They certainly have. I grew up on Exmoor, for heaven's sake. I've still got a farm on Exmoor. You can yep. hardly be on Exmoor without seeing the great sense of nature. But the other thing is you use your mind. What is really going down the drain? What is going down the drain is nature. You know, colossally, 60% you know, of the wildlife of this country gone in the last 50 years. This is, these are crucial things, and they're economically vital. There's a gentleman called Mr. Dasgupta who produced a fantastically important report recently about the sheer economic importance of keeping nature going. So for me, it's nature protection. Above yep. all, I want to get nature protection, a commitment to nature protection in the current environment bill, which is going through. If you remember way back in 2008 when the Labour government the last Labour government was in power, the Conservatives actually helped them put into the climate bill of 2008 a target which said you actually got to get to net zero by X, Y, or Z. But it's impossible, isn't it? It may be impossible to get to net zero. Who can tell? I mean, it, but I want to do the same thing for nature protection. A whole yeah, lot of no, people I'm do. with you. Look, I'm well, with you. I'm with you. Good, Nigel, on, good. On, on habitat. Fantastic. On, on reforestation. Good, Nigel. Good reforestation. You, I'm with you, you on you all of that. You are going to be the banner waver I'm with you on all part. of that, and, I, and I, I'm appalled. Yeah by some of the fishing methods we use yes. in the sea, uh, by plastic in the seas, many plastic, of these things. Plastic, plastic. I mean, terrible thing. I'm but, but Stanley, now. my problem is this. Our complete obsession with carbon reduction, CO2 reduction, and this country has, has made some, some commitments that it can never, ever meet, and that if it does meet them, is going to impoverish ordinary working people. Uh, and that, that, I find that a real can problem. I, can I pick up your two Please. points? OK. Commitments we'll never, never meet. Well, we are still more or less on track to do what we said we'd do by 2035. 2035, we've got a target. 2050, we've got a target. We are more or less on track. John Gummer, Lord Deben keeps on reminding us we're not totally on track and we need to get more, you know, more energy and more effort behind him and he's behind us and he's, he's right about that. Will it impoverish uh, poor people? It's perfectly obvious that we have to find ways to make sure it doesn't hit white van man. And why are we going to do that? Because actually the cost of dealing with climate change is tiny compared with the benefits of dealing with climate change. And this is something that the, the Chancellor's Exchequer is going to realise. But that all sounds wonderful. You, but you, that all it, sounds it, it wonderful. wonderful. But, I mean, here's the point. We are emitting about 1% of, of global That'd CO2. That's true. That'd be true. And as I understand it, China will build 100 new coal-fired power stations in 2021. Fine. And between China and India... I mean, those two countries alone are producing almost a third okay. of global CO2. And why do you think so why should we? And here's my point, and this matters really. Okay. And, and particularly because one of the reasons 
One of the reasons that the Conservatives have got this big majority at the moment and the red wall and all the rest of it, yes, it was Brexit, yes, it was border controls, but it was also things like, you know, when a steelworks in red car closes down, but that production moves to India, and the products made in India are then shipped back Fine. to Britain. Nigel, you... And, you, and this, this is a real worry OK, and this is a worry which is increasingly being understood. OK, the G7 didn't come out as hard and as firmly as you and I maybe would have liked on the need for carbon border taxes. But people like Liam Fox are pushing that hard. Carbon border taxes are what you impose or threaten, yeah, I, to impose, I, I, you know, threaten to impose on countries like China and India. But, but again, but again, Stanley, that's all well and good yeah? for wealthy people living in Richmond because what it does is it pushes the price of everything up. It doesn't. On the contrary, you rehome those industries. So instead of actually getting possibly inferior, certainly more polluting products from abroad, you find that you're making them back home in Do you Britain. really think we can bring back manufacturing, uh, chemical plants, steel-making, and why. still head towards these targets? Uh, I don't see why not. I don't see why not at all. And in any event, if you actually look at the global impact, it is probably true to say that having those products made in China with less efficient mm. methods, and you mentioned the one million uh, megawatt plants, of mm. 1,000 megawatt, mm. which are going on mm. well, one a week, probably in terms of the actual impact on the environment, it's much better to rehome those industries produce the stuff here. It well, if that could happen, I'd love it. Now, you mentioned the G7. Yeah. And one of the things that happened at the G7 was Biden tried to get a resolution, a quite a strong resolution, condemning the Chinese Communist Party government for their treatment of the Uyghur Muslim minority. And it didn't happen because uh, Mrs. Merkel and Macron and Boris Johnson um, seem to have sort of taken the view that China or the Chinese Communist Party are our friends and allies. And I, it seems to me that this is perhaps another, uh, Brexit's over, but I think... No, I, you're I, not... I mean, you, seem to be, you seem to be very close to China. I mean, it was said that you've been to the Chinese ambassador and given a message back to 10 Downing Street. I mean, I, I want to ask you straight, yeah, what, just, is, what is your relationship you, with the Chinese I, Communist Party? you something, there was, nothing, there, was, there was nothing secret about my meeting with the Chinese ambassador because I thought I was typing a little note to um, a lady in the government and it turns out I copied it to the Today programme. That is because I was typing in a taxi going home and it clicked on the wrong button. No. I'd never pretended I wasn't uh, seeing the Chinese ambassador. Why shouldn't I? I'm an, I'm an ordinary person and an individual citizen. Plus B, I've been going to China since actually, well, we first tried to go to China on a motorcycle in 1961 when I was trying to follow Marco Polo's route. We got as far as Calcutta, but we couldn't get, in, we couldn't get into China. And I've been going, and three of my novels no, have been know, about China. I know that you... It, it's madness to be anti-Chinese. It's absolutely madness. I quite agree with you about the Uyghurs. That's perfectly obvious. Yeah. But we're not trying to bargain. Or stealing industrial secrets or... Yeah, so many, or, or the, what about Hong Kong? What about Hong Kong? Come on, I mean, we, you know, that was a very important agreement that was made. Autonomy to 2047. They've broken it in every way, Stanley. Hong Kong, I've been going to Hong Kong since 1961. I understand completely, completely what you were saying. And of course, the 1997 agreement needs to be, needs to be respected. It's not being respected. Fine, fine. <laughs> no doubt other things which we're not doing. But there's no point in saying we're going to send our warships to take on the well, Chinese Navy. It doesn't make sense. No, Stanley, we're going to disagree on that. Finally, I must ask you something. <laughs> it's not political. Your son's prime minister. I'm not going to go into any policy details. I wouldn't do that. But I just one question about his personality. Is he a decisive person? Totally decisive. Totally decisive. I mean, basically, 
He knows what is going to happen. He knows we are going to get out of this COVID with success. And we are going to move relentlessly forward on some of the key policy okay. goals. And what are they? Climate change, biodiversity, levelling up, Nigel, and cheers. Well, cheers, yes. cheers. cheers. Well, <laughs> that was Stanley Johnson, and we were just talking pints. That was great. Thank you very much indeed. Pleasure. Terrific. Pleasure. So there we are. That's the point of GB News, isn't it? You know, presenters here on this channel will have opinions. But we're going to make sure that you, the listener, gets to hear a whole range of opinions. And Stanley Johnson and I don't quite agree on China. But it's so important that we have proper, grown-up, sensible, civilised debate about these things, as opposed to the sort of what's happening too much in the world today, which is, I disagree with what you say, Therefore, I'll do my best to prevent you from even being allowed to say it. And this channel is a long, long way from that. Now, finally, it's our barrage, the farage section of the show where you fire in your comments and questions to me. And Pamela says, France do not appear to want to stop the illegal migrants coming here. So we should not be making donations to them. Pamela, Pretty Patel's argument is that the French have actually stopped lots of illegal migrant boats coming to Britain this year. The problem is there are just more people trying to do it. Uh, frankly, uh, we keep another 30 million, another 30 million. Now it's another 54 million. And there I was this morning watching the French Navy escorting a boat into British waters. It is not good enough. Angela says, so we have 54 million to throw at France and watch their Navy escort boats into our waters, but not enough to give the NHS. Well, Yes, but I think the truth of it is the NHS is probably going to need quite a bit more than 54 million over the course of the next few years. Martin asks, what happens once these illegal migrants land in the UK? Is Border Force UK overwhelmed? They are hopelessly overwhelmed. But the funny thing is this. Border Force in the Channel are not there to protect our borders. They're there to accept people who have crossed into our waters and then take them in to a reception centre where they're assessed uh, and, and, and ultimately where we have to house them. Border force are being asked to do something that is not protecting our borders. And what is even sadder is that the RNLI, a fantastic organisation that I've helped raise some money for over the years, they've been going since 1824. Um, there were three of them out this morning. There was a man overboard incident off Dungeness Point this morning. And the RNLI staffed mainly by volunteers, people who, when the pager goes, stop their job, go out to sea, take huge risks. And to see the RNLI, effectively in Kent, being turned into a taxi service, a yacht broke down in the shipping lanes on Monday off Dover. There was no lifeboat free to go and help them because they were busy picking up migrants. And I, and I, I see the division that is there. The division that is there within those communities that have supported the RNLI for all these years, and it's, I'm afraid, not a pretty sight.